Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to be viral. This is something you can consume while in motion. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles as usual. Uh, I hope you're doing well, wherever you happen to be. My guest today is Cal Morgan. He is an executive editor at the Harper Division of HarperCollins, where he is also the editorial director for Harper Perennial and Harper Paperbacks. He's a busy guy, uh, and over the years he's worked with a variety of notable authors, several of whom have appeared right here on this program. Uh, I think you're going to really like hearing from him, and uh, that conversation is going to begin in just a moment. Before we get there, I wanted to address a couple of things right out of the gate. First of all, there is this from a listener. from Minneapolis and I love reading meow and I have one question for you Bradley meow 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 
to feature more stories and guests who focus on the affairs and well-being of pets and animals. Meow. Whoever this is, uh, they're making me want to be a carnivore. If I ever meet this cat, uh, what's his name, Keanu? If I ever meet Keanu in person, I'm going to eat him, okay? I'm going to eat your cat. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, it, it is true. I'm a vegetarian. I'm an animal lover. I've been a vegetarian for like 15 years. And I think that generally speaking, it's great to advocate for animal rights. I think we treat animals horribly. And I think uh, it, that basic fact says bad things about humanity. At the same time, I have to admit that I find most talk about things related to uh, like veganism, vegetarianism, animal rights, including uh, the things that I say. I find that stuff to be annoying most of the time. Which might sound uh, counterintuitive or odd. But let me give you an example. It's sort of like this. Back when I was a smoker, and yes, I was one of those vegetarians who would smoke a cigarette <laughs> after eating like a large uh, quinoa salad. Uh, but the point is, when I was a smoker, I used to find secondhand smoke disgusting. To the point that like if I was out uh, you know, in public and I was near someone who was smoking a cigarette, and I myself was not smoking, I would be offended by the person who was smoking. <laughs> I would like give them a dirty look as if to say, I can't believe you're smoking in my presence. Uh, all of which is to say I'm a terrible hypocrite with uh, deep seated personality flaws. But the fact remains uh, that there is a distinct similarity between these things. I think you have to be careful about how you advocate. I have to be careful talking about this stuff. I think my worst moments on the show are when I get sensitive and like nauseatingly self-critical about things like veganism and feminism. And, you know, and yet I think veganism is a very noble idea, broadly speaking, and the same goes for feminism. So, I guess it's about tone and delivery. I need to work on my tone and my delivery. So there's that. Uh, thank you to whoever that was. And then uh, we have uh, another voicemail from a listener named uh, David Fishkind. Is that how you pronounce it? David Fishkind in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Brad. This is David Fishkind from Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I just want to ask you why you don't include, like, wider literary events in your podcast. For example, Miley Cyrus showing her butt. You know, maybe maybe I should talk about that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I, I think you guys would be surprised by how little I know about contemporary culture. I'm surprised by it sometimes. Like, I'm just not a conventional consumer of culture in the way that so many people on, for example, my uh, Twitter feed seem to be. I can't keep up. I don't want to keep up. I didn't watch the VMAs. I don't even, you know, I don't even have TV. <laughs> I 
I couldn't tell you a single song by Miley Cyrus. I've never uh, seen Hannah Montana. I, I just don't care. Though I did get the gist out, you know, online after the fact. Like, how could you not? Everybody was up in arms about her performance and what she did. Uh, to me, it just seems like a whole lot of bullshit. It's a bunch of noise. And uh, moreover, it's a bunch of people online ambulance chasing for clicks and uh, Twitter followers or whatever. I mean, like, I'm old enough to remember when Madonna came out in her wedding dress and sang like a virgin on the VMAs. I think it was the VMAs back in the 1980s. And uh, everyone lost their minds in much the same way, more or less. The point is, this has been going on for a long time. That's what the VMAs are. Just a competition to see who can win uh, the unspoken contest uh, for publicity. And it's a repetitive, predictable cycle. And uh, the fact that we're still doing it all these years later is uh, both depressing and mind-numbingly stupid. Who cares about Miley Cyrus or MTV? I hate all of it. That's my stance. <laughs> so. And I just want to make sure you include the wider goings-on and discourses from the community of arts and letters, especially the close-knit group of writers here in Brooklyn who may not be exposed to the world like important people such as yourself living in the great city of Los Angeles. Wait, like, do I detect condescension there? Or is that like Xanax deadpan? I can't tell. But uh, I think David is full of shit. I think he's joking. But uh, one thing that he is right about is that I am hugely important. I'm a cultural force. <laughs> and uh, then I also, I thought I could uh, kind of detect some unfounded East Coast, West Coast hostility. Which uh, I want no part of. I mean, uh, first of all, Brooklyn not being exposed to stuff culturally. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, you're, at the, you're in the epicenter of American literary life, David, which I think you know. And there's probably more uh, published authors per capita in Brooklyn than anywhere else in the country. You like, can't walk out your door in Bushwick. Like, you can't swing a dead cat in Bushwick. You can't swing Keanu <laughs> without hitting, you know, without hitting an author in the face. Los Angeles, by comparison, is an outpost from a literary perspective. It's just a vastly different place at pretty much every level. So uh, the point is, I'm obviously going to be talking to writers from Brooklyn and writers from Manhattan uh, on future episodes. It's unavoidable on a show of this nature. And, uh, and look, I've got nothing against Brooklyn. It's great. I love New York too. But if I'm being honest, uh, I should probably focus on talking to more authors who aren't there. Like I, I need to talk to fewer authors from New York and Los Angeles and more authors from places like, uh, North Dakota. So thanks David for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, and then to circle back a little bit to my comments on Miley Cyrus and the wider cultural conversation, I actually wanted to bring something up that uh, I've been contemplating lately involving the show's format. And uh, there's nothing official happening, but I have been at least considering the notion 
of expanding the guest list to include not only authors of books and uh, editors of books, but also screenwriters, writer-directors, showrunners, etc., from the worlds of film and television. So people who are telling stories in whatever medium. And, you know, there seems to be some logic in branching out uh, due to the fact that, A, so many authors dabble in screenwriting or at least have a passing interest in it, uh, or at the very least are like rabid consumers of it. And then B, uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, as David mentioned, and I have proximity to those industries and the people who work in them. So I guess my question for listeners is, do you like that idea? Is it a good idea? Do you think it would mess things up? Do you think it would make things more interesting? And so on. So if you have thoughts anywhere along the spectrum, good, bad, uh, or ugly, I'd be interested in hearing from you. You can leave me a voicemail at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. All you have to do is click on send voicemail over at the right side of the page, uh, or else you can write me an email. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Cal Morgan, uh, an executive editor at the Harper Division and the editorial director for Harper Perennial and Harper Paperbacks at HarperCollins. How's that for a mouthful? In my opinion, he is uh, publishing as well as anyone in the business. And uh, I'm really pleased to have him here on the program to share some of his insights So let's get started. This right here is my conversation with Cal Morgan. I am uh, in my office, which is in the HarperCollins building at uh, 10 East 53rd Street in lovely midtown Manhattan. Uh, I'm sitting at a desk, and uh, my desk faces, uh, sorry to say, away from a window. Uh, and the, but the window looks out on nothing but uh, a sort of an anonymous uh, brick-lined air shaft. So I don't. I, I'm usually not missing all that much. <laughs> See, I always want. I always want these like editors that I speak with. I always and anyone who works in a high-rise in Manhattan, I always want them to have some sort of like grand view. But that's not the case. Uh, It has been, I've been lucky enough that once or twice I've had uh, really nice views. There was a a short window of time in my career about six or seven years ago when uh, my company moved briefly out to uh, L.A. And the office I had for that 
seven or eight month period was the best office I will ever have in my entire life and looked out. It was on, on the 10th floor of um, a building on Santa Monica Boulevard and across the street was the Los Angeles uh, Country Club, the LA sort of golf course. All I could see from this ludicrous office was an enormous swath of trees that I was sort of above. And so it was looking like looking out in Sherwood Forest or something. I, I'm grateful for those few months, and I know I'll probably never uh, replicate that in Manhattan. Okay, so wait, was that Judith Regan's imprint? That's right. Okay, so and that was in L.A. for just a, a bit, and then it left. Is that right? Uh, well, it was in L.A. for um, uh, for about seven months' time, and uh, and then the imprint came to an end unexpectedly, and okay, uh, we all came back to New York. Okay, okay, okay. I remember that. I remember when she moved her thing out here, and and uh, I, that seemed to make sense because you know L.A. and the the kinds of books that she was publishing and the the celebrity yeah. vertical or whatever, but. Uh, now you're back in New York. You're at Harper, and you know when I was uh, when I was getting ready to talk to you, I was looking through, um, you know, just job description, title, etc. And it always occurs to me with regard to publishing is that I need to be better about keeping track of the various imprints at the various houses and who's doing what. And uh, this might be like a weak comparison, but it reminds me of uh, my total, uh, you know, lack of understanding of like military rank. Like you're you're the executive editor at Harper, but also the editorial director at Harper Perennial. Like, why don't you just describe? Tell us what you do. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I edit books, and and uh, and that's uh, you know that's what I'm spending. Uh, the hours between 8:30 in the morning and whenever it is, I finally conk out at night doing. And, and the 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 two titles, you're right about the two titles. And and uh, except for an article, which makes a, a big difference, uh, I'm an executive editor at Harper, not 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 the. And I say that only because there are uh, several executive editors here, and I wouldn't want anybody to have the impression I was the only one. Um, but that means that I'm one of the editors uh, at Harper acquiring books and uh, seeing them through the works and looking out for new authors and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm also the editorial director of Harper Perennial, and uh, in that case, it is a the. And what that means is that I'm uh, the person sort of in concert with our publisher, Jonathan Burnham, and our uh, um, associate publisher, Amy Baker, uh, who's out looking for new authors and uh, working with all of the editors here in acquiring new authors for the Harper Perennial Originals program. So that's a sort of a broader editorial mandate um, and a real you know, uh, passion uh, project or passion part of my job and, and has been for, uh, for several years now. Well, and I want to talk to you about both of those, but um, one thing I want to ask is with regard to acquisitions, um, at the level that you're at, I'm assuming at Harper Perennial, if you want to uh, acquire somebody's book and publish it, you, you can do that. Can you can, can do you have green light uh, authority, or do you have to like? <laughs> uh, I, I, I technically have a certain amount, uh, but I really tried to uh, go to bat for things that I feel we're all going to fall in love with, and and we are. You know, we're a very tight knit group, and so when one of us, whether it's me or Amy or any of the editors, falls in love with something, uh, it's it's much less about you know well, I say we should do this, and much more about um, sort of sharing the read with everybody and having everybody sort of fall all over themselves and each other with excitement about it, and then uh, then nobody has to talk anybody into anything. 
And is that at Harper Perennial, or is that in both capacities? Both that's that's a that's a that's a perennial. I mean, in Harper, uh, the larger Harper hardcover uh, imprint, it's much more a matter of a kind of a meeting of the minds between Jonathan, the publisher, and um, and the editor. Okay, so let's let's talk about Harper Perennial um, and this particular. Uh, acquisitions process because I think a lot of my listeners are familiar with perennial. Uh, I've, I've interviewed perennial authors on this show, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm you know it's it, it's got a good reputation. It's distinguished itself, uh, I think, in a way that a lot of imprints don't uh, or haven't been able to. And you've you've had a lot of success and published some really good books. And so, for people listening, many of whom are out there uh, working on books or, or hoping to one day submit a book or publish a book. Um, can you describe like what happens? Let's say like take us into a more granular level of detail with, re- with regard to uh, somebody, one of your editors gets a manuscript from an agent, falls in love with it. Uh, then what? Uh, then, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words about about perennial because it is something that we uh, think a lot about and that we take a lot of uh, care in and pride in. Uh, as far as as when a manuscript comes in that we that we fall in love with, I mean, it's it's. It, it, it's very much a, a, like uh, a, an institutionalized version of what happens when you have a lot of friends who are readers and you want to run around and tell them all about a book that you've just read. And, uh, and in many cases, it's probably kind of a little bit – I've never been in part of a formal book club. That's, that's sort of the last thing I would uh, be able to squeeze into my into my <laughs> life at this point. But, um, but if, I imagine it's quite like that in the sense that uh, – then after you do tell all your friends about it and and uh, cross your fingers and hope that a lot of them will go off and read it so you can have great conversations about it, uh, that you do, you know, all come into a room, whether it's formally at an editorial meeting or informally just in groups of two or three sitting in each other's offices and talk about what you loved and, and what parts you didn't love or thought could use work. And, and a little bit of it's done by email, a little bit of it's done by phone, but very often and mostly really it's done, uh, you know, in, a, in, in an in-person basis with all of us sitting around and, and, um, and thinking hard about um, what it would look like to publish this book. And in many cases, it feels just inevitable that you, you read something and everybody just knows right away. You think, oh, how how could we not? Uh, and in some cases, it feels like there may be more of a leap of faith involved, especially when you're buying nonfiction or you're buying something that's a little bit more challenging. If it's a piece of fiction that's a little bit more experimental and everybody can see the value of it, but there might be a bit of... Um, uh, of a leap to uh, think forward to how you can gain attention for something that might be a little bit more challenging. And so you draw off of everybody's enthusiasm, everybody's experience and ideas and, and things that we've seen done before that have worked and, and uh, try really from that beginning moment on to evolve a little bit of a sense of what would this publication uh, look like. And if that story begins to sound real and organic and exciting, that's when we know, yeah, we should do this. We should go after this book. Okay. So what happens when somebody falls in love, let's say one of your editors or you fall, you know, falls in love with uh, a novel and then brings it to the group at an editorial meeting and everyone's Mm -hmm. taken home the manuscript to read it. And it's like a, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like 40, 60, 40% like it, 60% don't like, do you have to deal with situations where editors are, are like deeply heartbroken and possibly embittered because like a book they love 
didn't pass muster with the group? I mean, do, does everybody kind of have a um, does everybody is everybody working from the perspective that they will cede authority to to the group, or do people ever uh, succeed in publishing a book uh, that did not receive majority approval, but you know got through the, the hoops based on the strength of their enthusiasm? Well, really, the person leading the conversation, whether it's Jonathan or myself or Amy, um, I think has to, this is, this is part of the job of building a list and maintaining and growing a list, uh, has got to walk a line between, on one hand, uh, listening to the prevailing wind on a book and the, you know, the consensus uh, that all of these smart people in the room are bringing to bear on it, while on the other hand, also listening to that one passionate editor's voice. And there are plenty of books that uh, could conceivably, if they had been brought to a really broad forum, uh, have uh, been felled by a consensus that uh, didn't connect with them, uh, but that really should should have been published and were published and have been published sort of to success and, and to admiration simply because one editor said, I know that we should do this and I have a vision for it and here's how we can do it. And the, um, the decision maker, whoever it may be, uh, said, well, I think we have to trust that. Uh, because in truth, not everybody in a publishing company or even in an editorial uh, board or an imprint has to have the consuming vision for a book. What matters is that a couple or a few people do. You know, the publisher should have at least at, at the beginning of the acquisition, the publisher should have uh, an instinct for how it should be published and a good feeling for the book. The editor, I think, is almost always going to be the driving force and the chief advocate and uh, flag flag waver for the book. And then you also want to believe from the beginning that the that the marketing people and maybe it's one marketing uh, director or manager and maybe it's one publicist uh, will find that they sparked the book too. And from that, there you know, naturally evolves a little team of people who are all like-minded and, and uh, all really want to spend their next, whatever it may be, year, three years, um, you know, really fighting for that book. And so, okay. And so what about more experimental works? Because, you know, it, it always, it always fascinates me how those kinds of books that are really fall outside uh, the realm of uh, conventional fiction or nonfiction, but yet uh, find a home at a, a big five, I guess it's the big five now, uh, publishing house with a really good mm -hmm. imprint. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much of that kind of work that is usually uh, found online or uh, is published by really small presses. And so I'm wondering how that argument is made, because I think with, you know, there are some books, and I'm sure you can attest to this, uh, based on your experiences at IT or uh, at Harper Perennial, where you know people read them and it's like okay we get it we know what the what the hook is you know to use sure. uh, like Hollywood lingo or whatever but there then there are these like really experimental books that have a lot of merit like you said but uh, you know are much harder to pitch and much harder I think to market maybe to the general reading public and so like how do those arguments go because man it seems like uh, it seems like a tougher sell and and probably a tougher thing to get consensus on. Well, of, sure, of course it is. And yet those are the most exciting books. 
uh, for me anyway. I mean, there are books. There, I can find excitement in a lot of different kinds of publish, publications and publishing experiences. There's excitement in uh, publishing a book that you just know there's going to be a big, big audience for. Uh, you know, whether it's nonfiction and you know that everybody is really fascinated with the author, or it's uh, fiction and it's somebody who's written just a you know unbelievably irresistible, compelling uh, first novel or you know, breakout novel or what have you. Uh, there's, you know, there's there's lots of publications like that that are just um, home runs from the start, and everybody knows it, and everybody smiles every time they think about the book. Uh, but the the books that are uh, the greatest challenges are, for those reasons, often the most satisfying. I mean, the books where you really have to think hard about what it is that makes you keep thinking about that book and what it is that gives you the, the confidence to go into whoever your boss is or to you know buttonhole your colleagues in the, in the hallway and say, you know, forgive me because this is going to sound crazy, but let me describe this book to you. And at the end of the description, I want you at least to feel like you want to go read it too and see if it moves you the way it, it, it did me. And that, in the end of the day, is, is, is just more um, uh, meaningful in a sense. It's more powerful It's because it's, it's, it's fighting for the little guy and it's fighting for a rare experience. It's not fighting for an easy experience. It's fighting for one that may be hard, but at the end of the day, will it probably brought you something different uh, from any other book you'll read this year? And how heroic is that? How exciting is that? And, and that's that to me. That's why uh, I spend most of my time listening to as much as, as much you know huge respect and admiration as I have for the very experienced uh, editors here who have been editors for twenty five thirty years or more. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time my time listening to the youngest editors to the editorial assistants and junior editors and people who have just been promoted to full editor status um, who kind of haven't been through every battle and seen a lot of battles won and a lot of battles lost. They're discovering things for the first time. And that means that, you know, as I did and do when we, as we all do, they'll make mistakes along the way or they'll be, they'll make naive bets sometimes or try to get us to make naive bets sometimes, but they're also going to have that, uh, enthusiasm for the new, that that uh, sense of discovery, that um, that's what brought us all into the business. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's going to, if, if the publishing business needs saving, which I, <laughs> I'm not exactly convinced of, that's what will save it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, too, you know, you have that, that youthful energy. They're not jaded, necessarily. Right. Uh, right. And then, you know, one of the things that comes to mind along these lines is, uh, repercussions for, uh, like you said, uh, maybe encouraging naive bets or for betting on horses that don't, uh, quote unquote win. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, my mind, I, I, my mind goes to Hollywood again. Maybe it's cause I'm sitting in Los Angeles, but I think about, uh, something I read or something someone said to me once about, um, people who are, you know, at the, at the acquisitions crossroads and how, you know, the, it's, it's very fear driven and people in Hollywood, at least, you know, they get, uh, they get fired for what they say yes to. They don't necessarily get fired for what they say no to, or that's that's yep. the way it tends to work out. And so yep. I'm curious, like, if within the context of a publishing uh, imprint or a publishing house, if there is a similar culture of fear, <laughs> and if there are, if there are re if there are repercussions for making bad bets or or repercussions for making good bets, like. 
It's a it's a really smart question, and uh, it's something that I I think uh, before I even knew it consciously was uh, kind of intuitively or or just almost through. Uh, almost physically kind of aware of when I came into the publishing business in the first place because I, I mean I came in I was very young I was literally 20 years old when I first got, I got my first job in publishing uh, I and I was so astonished that anybody in the business of books which to me was as close as as, as a, as a kid who was raised with no church background whatsoever. This was this was as close as you got to a sacred calling. Uh, the idea that they would want to take me on board and give me a little bit of a shot of, of, uh, of trying to start to make some of those calls and trying to get out there and fight for individual books. It was astonishing to me that anybody would, um, uh, you know, would, would give me that shot. I mean, there were only how, how many, and at this point, this was 25 years ago, fewer, um, you know, than there are now coming into publishing because there were just, you know, there were probably more sort of what we would consider mainstream houses, but there were so many fewer uh, small publishers and small presses and that kind of thing than there are now. So there was this limited number of slots of people who came in every year. And so I was just desperately aware of how precious that was. And, uh, and, and one of the things that, uh, gave me a sense of really good fortune very early on was that I came into a house, uh, my, my first job was at St. Martin's Press. And uh, coming into St. Martin's Press in 1988 was coming into a very, very large, very profitable, uh, very mainstream publishing house. Uh, and happily, it was a place where uh, the editorial um, sort of ethos was uh, extremely Catholic in the small C sense of the word. And anybody who came in, whether you were a 22 year old assistant uh, or somebody who'd been working there for 40 years uh, with an idea, large or small, that seemed like it was at all sort of financially viable, would be given a shot at it and could be given a shot at it because the overall place was profitable enough that there was um, there was room for experimentation. And that, I think, was what gave me the confidence to try to start buying books. And so I was at St. Martin's for a long time, building a list uh, in a context where I was never, I never had to be worried that the place was going to be closed down tomorrow or that if I made one bad bet, it was going to be the end of my career or anybody else's. Uh, I then, as you mentioned, I then worked for several years for Judith Regan, and uh, there the, the stakes in many ways were higher. Uh, and we probably didn't do as much uh, kind of experiment, experimental fiction or anything like that, but we did certainly take you know certain kinds of risks with certain books, and there was room to publish interesting fiction a little bit every year and that sort of thing. And it was always buoyed by the fact that we knew that she was such a profitable publisher that again we weren't you know we weren't going to be thrown out of town on one bad bet. Uh, and there's something very freeing and something important to publishing about that model where. A certain part of the engine is very muscular and very geared toward the masses, and it helps to make room for uh, the more experimental bets. Right, right, yeah. I mean, because if you you know if you don't have, it seems it seems like if publishers don't keep um, some some sort of free money <laughs> for those for those <laughs> right. pur- you, you know what I'm saying for those purposes, sure. then it's it's going to be hard uh, to grow. Or to, or to at least be exciting, you know. Not that not that more conventional books, for lack of a better word, are, can't be exciting. But 
you know, it's it's the books like um, I'm thinking of Blake Butler, you know, at, at Perennial, mm-hmm. like that. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's a book that you guys have done or his work that you've done that, you know, it's it's kind of an unlikely um, home in a way for a book that that works out on those edges. But then at the same time, you know, it's it's got its audience and it's got a lot of enthusiasm around it. Yeah, and and I'm actually and I'm. It's great that you mentioned him because I just uh, am finishing work with him on, on on his next novel, which is coming out next year, and uh, that'll be our third book together. And uh, you know, the only I agree with everything you say except the. Um, which I know you didn't mean pointedly, but the, the the sense that you know that it's an odd fit for a mainstream house to do that kind of book, I think. I think we all have to, and I think we all want to, and I think that the big that the reason it may look odd to some extent is just because the the way that Blake came up, he came through um, unusual channels, and so there was there was never a sort of a sense, you know, when we acquired uh, There Is No Year, the first book that I did with him, uh, there was never a sense that um, that it was acquired in the context of a large auction where. Uh, um, uh, you know, where a very uh, sort of uh, big push was made by an agent and a large submission and an auction and that kind of thing. Uh, it was done because I happened to connect with Blake online and uh, what he and invited him to send something, and it was so extraordinary that I knew that I couldn't I couldn't not make a push for it, even even before I began to think about how to publish him and how. One would go about making money and building a career with somebody like Blake. Uh, I just knew that the work was so extraordinary and amazing and unlike anything else that I that I'd done uh, that it was sort of a um, undeniable imperative that, that I that I had to try. But there are people in publishing in mainstream houses publishing stuff that's challenging in ways that are on not unlike Blake all the time. I mean, Ben Marcus has written work that's very much along the same lines. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, House of Leaves, uh, which is a book that I think, you know, by myself and others was a little bit unfairly uh, grasped for at the beginning of when we were working with Blake as a, as a comparison. I mean, there's nothing more challenging out there, uh, you know, than, than House of Leaves. And truth is, uh, you know, go back to early pension. You know, when we were Harper Perennial, Harper was um, was the publisher of Crying of Lot 49. Um, we've been doing that for decades, and uh, and I love the fact that that's a part of, uh, of of what we all as mainstream publishers have to do. Sure, sure. And so uh, just to go back to the, you know, one more thought on um, the acquisitions process and the, yeah. re- the repercussions or whatever. Like, I have to imagine that as an editor – uh, or you know, working with other editors that you've bo- uh, been witness to like hot streaks and cold streaks. <laughs> like, have you ever been? <laughs> have you ever been on an acquisition streak where you were just like killing it? You know, like three or four or five books in a row where you just had the Midas touch. Uh, and then conversely, have you ever been in a situation where you lose it? Like, do you ever feel like you have you have it and then you lose it and then it comes back? Is there any sense of that? Oh God! I think if I thought that way, I would just—I would never make it to work in the morning. That'd be paralyzing. Can you uh, you imagine being like a having to feel like a baseball player, and you know, there's a stadium around you of people watching to see if this one's going to make it. No, I mean one one of the one of the reasons that I'm comfortable with and in love with publishing in my job is that I—I mean, I, I'm a little bit oddly wired in this way. I—I I really hate to think about 
um, things like competition. I'm 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 aware that publishing is even especially now in an enormously competitive uh, situation, and there are a lot of market forces that are really tough to go up against. And there are fortunately uh, terrifically capable business people um, strategizing about all of those important things uh, all day long. And and I participate in those conversations, and they're really really important. Uh, but but I one thing I've 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 I hope uh, tried to be pretty immune to is kind of looking over my own shoulder at you know what have what have what's my acquisition pattern been what have my colleagues out there you know either in this building or elsewhere uh, you know been 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 up to and I mean I'm aware of what people have been buying but I never think about like oh are they losing their touch you know because we are very much we're subject to what people um, bring us or what we happen to find when we're going out there and looking for stuff ourselves I mean you certainly have years when you feel oh this is terrific. You know, I've just found five people in the course of five months who I, you know, hope to be reading for the next 20 years. And then that I've, I've actually felt that way this year. I mean, the number of people that I've made connections with, some of whom I'm, I, I'm going to be lucky enough to publish and some of whom I'm just going to, you know, be glad to have discovered in the past year or 18 months has is, is been amazing. Uh, but then there are times, sure, when you're just really hoping to fall in love with something tomorrow because you haven't for six months. That's, that, that happens too. Okay. And so in, with regard to the rise of small presses and the rise of the Internet with, you know, and its relationship to publishing, has the acquisitions process changed for you? Because it would seem that it, it would have to, right? I mean, back in the day at St. Martin's, you're getting most of your submissions through uh, agents. And I think that probably predominates today. But there's also some situations where authors are coming directly to you or you're going directly to authors or you're stumbling onto people on the Internet and inviting them to submit. I mean, how does it work and how has it changed? I, I think the the big revolution is uh, having the direct access that we do now to writers, to being able to reach out to writers um, online and being able to read their material online and, and thus knowing about them. I mean, uh, the, the reason I know about... Uh, about Blake is that he uh, had submitted something to me for a short story blog that I was running for several years called 52 Stories. Uh, the reason I know about Roxanne Gay, uh, whom we're doing an essay collection with next year, is that I'd been reading her um, literary commentary and pop culture commentary almost everywhere I looked for uh, for a good couple of years. I was going to so, say I was going to say she's ubiqu yeah. ubiquitous online. It seems like she is, and she's extraordinary. She, I think, more than anybody else, almost right now, has the ability to react instantaneously in in a an unbelievably smart and moving and human and yet also incredibly intelligent and perceptive way to. A cultural phenomenon that seemingly has just sort of blipped across our across our screen, and she gets it right the first time, and uh, and so she's just extraordinary. And and we sort of started a conversation very early on, and, and uh, it took us a while to settle on the book that we wanted to do together. But um, but she's somebody that I'm thrilled to to know and have on our list, and and whom I'm not sure. 
uh, I would have gotten on to quite as quickly if we were in the old universe of, um, you know, a handful, a half dozen of, of uh, old school literary magazines, which, of course, I, I do try to follow and and, uh, and read as much as I can. But um, but it was it was the fact of her, as you say, her ubiquity and her responsiveness and her participation in the conversation out there that was so exciting. Well, and then what about uh, your advice to authors? I mean, like if there are authors out there that are listening to this uh, conversation and they, you know, have half of a manuscript and maybe a few short stories in the drawer or something like, like mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you tell writers who ask you for advice? Do you say, go the traditional route, get an agent? Would you advise them, publish online? Be, you know, do you need a platform like of social media or like what, what's the model? Is there a model? I, I think it's look for people uh, like yourself. It's look for people who are uh, doing the kind of work that you respond to, that you are likely to fall in love with, um, people you want to start a conversation with about the things you care about. They're out there, and they're findable now online, uh, and not just online. The truth is in, in person. I mean, I act, there's... It, people talk much less about the fact that there's a much more vibrant uh, kind of uh, culture of, of readings and appearances and, you know, debates and panels and Q&As and all that kind of thing than there was, you know, 25 years ago. And, and people are meeting each other and and using uh, these meetings as an occasion to sort of uh, keep conversations going that they began to be passionate about as soon as they began to become thinking people and adults and, and, you know, make their way through school. And I think, I think in previous generations, it was very easy to have that moment when you leave school be a moment when you had to make a very uh, sort of dichotomous choice between, am I going to go off and be a professional now, or am I going to keep this conversation going by staying in grad school or by working on a novel, you know, coming to New York, trying to get involved in publishing, which is a little bit of both of those things, I guess. But um, the, uh, the the people who uh, are kind of coming into the cultural conversation today don't have to make that choice. They can they can continue to um, be the people, be, you know, be the intellectually curious people that I think they um, had be you know had begun to become when they were first falling in love with books and those uh, as i say just in the same way that i that i love working with the young editors here those are the writers that i uh, that i love working with and one you know it's any of them who come and ask me for advice uh it's much i usually try much more to talk to them about uh, what they're writing about because they don't honestly none of them needs my advice as far as as um sort of connecting with other writers i, I just encourage them in that sense um, in the end of the day, that's much imp- more important than worrying about, you know, how am I going to get published? Because the roads to that are, uh, they will become clearer and publishers will begin to come to you the more you publish amazing stuff and connect with other people and begin to have your stuff be seen out there in the world. And then what about, you know, from your perspective and from the editorial perspective generally, um, you know, part of your job description has changed a little bit uh, with these small presses being out there and with the Internet being mm-hmm. out there trying to uh, keep your ear to the ground for writers like Blake or writers like Roxanne. Uh, but there's a part of me that's that, um, you know, I think of the Internet and I think of all the noise out there. And do you ever get overwhelmed? Like you're like, oh, my God, there are so many writers. Like, how are we going to like, how do we find the ones who actually cut through all this? Or is it I guess, is it just self-evident that? 
you know, that this particular writer has established herself or established himself and it's, it's just crystal clear? Or do you ever find yourself just kind of lost in the static? Because that's certainly my experience. And I also, I also think that with regard to like cultural essays and boy, oh boy, like a lot of people are responding online to these big events. And after a while, <laughs> after a while, I just want to like turn it off and be like, okay. Yeah. You know? yeah no, I, I think it's funny recently I've been uh, reading a lot of, uh, personal essays. I mean, in part because I'm thinking about, uh, Roxanne and reading her stuff, but in part because I'm working with a couple of other writers who are very naturally online, whether they're bloggers or they're just drawn to that kind of writing and commentary, they want to explore it and they want to begin to understand, uh, sort of how it works. And so I've actually, you know, I've been going and reading what now is 50 year old Joan Didion, uh, to see the way, you know, see the way the craft of the kind of personal essay or the journalistic slash personal essay has evolved in the past 50 years. And, and it's an enormously sort of challenging, uh, kind of a, a self-imposed assignment for any writer to try to do that kind of thing. And yet the barrier to entry these days is so low to getting something read that it can feel like the easiest thing in the world to do. It can feel like a slightly more artful version of a phone call to go and put a blog post up about Miley Cyrus or uh, Jonathan Franzen or what have you. And uh, the you know the good thing is that there is so much uh, amazing writing, so much really challenging, good, interesting writing going on now that I think people do still recognize the voices that rise above the fray. Sure, there are endlessly tiresome, you know, pieces of commentary where the blog is almost, you know, not much more worthwhile than the than the comments that come after it. Uh, and yet there are, there are voices like, you know, Roxanne's or Michelle Orange's, you know, whose new book I'm reading now and just in love with. What is it? Um, uh, is it the, this is running your life? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I talked to her. She's amazing. Show. I yeah. mean, she's amazing. And I had not known of her at all. Uh, and, and she's just terrific and confident and smart and relatable and, and, uh, just a pleasure. And there is so so it's not as though people aren't finding that level of artfulness and subtlety and um, um, an ability to kind of bend the form to to their needs and their will. Uh, there there are still people doing amazing work in that way. So in a way, maybe I'm a little bit of a of a you know binger in this in this kind of uh, prohibition era time when there's an enormous amount of of uh, you know freewheeling you know publishing of all kinds going on I'm ju- I just I'm still I still have the appetite for it I still read everything I can and I get a little exhausted sometimes and my eyes get tired but um, when I find a new voice you know I just I'm I'm still a sucker for it I mean I I was it's funny earlier today I was listening to uh, your terrific podcast with Lindsay Hunter who is you know somebody I started reading a few years ago and she and I ran a story of hers on, on 52 stories and she's outrageously good in in a kind of uh, writing where it would be easy to be a little cheap or a little facile and there are people out there like that too and they're all inhabiting the same space but you read Lindsay or you read um, you know a writer who I'm working with now called Kate Zambrino who I think you may have talked with her too who writes both fiction and non-fiction and she's so smart and sharp and Writing, you know, writing ten leagues above everybody else. Uh, those voices come; they, they they come out and grab you by the collar. I think. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think so too. It's funny that you mention all these names, like all these authors uh, that I've spoken with. Uh, it, it, you know, I don't know. There's something about the Harper perennial <laughs> DNA that like resonates <laughs> with like you know wherever I exist, you know, out here. Um, well, that's great to hear. Yeah, no, and I'm going to ask you more about that in just a bit. But before I get there, um, I scribbled a note to myself uh, a few minutes ago, and I want to make sure I ask you about this because I think my audience would like to hear about it. Um, the dream for so many authors, uh, if not every author, is the word mm. auction. <laughs> um, you hear about this. It's like it's sold at auction, and you're like, oh, my God. You know, and there are like yeah. 10 people bidding. What happens at an auction? How do, I mean, I know we know what happens at an auction, basically, but what happens at a literary auction? How does it work? Well, uh, it it, uh, it may be a dream for authors, and I, I know why it is. It can be a little bit of a nightmare for publishers uh, because what happens is that three or five or seven or nine people, all of whom are immensely talented professionals and super passionate about finding great new voices, all fall in love with the same thing at once and all want it. And uh, and then there are two different uh, sort of factors that end up getting, or maybe three, uh, that end up deciding uh, who gets you know who gets to walk away with the prize at the end of the day. There's there's money, and that's usually the you know the big honking objective reason that somebody wins an auction. You know, 99 times out of out of 100, the uh, the auction's won by the person who at the end of the day bids the largest amount of money for it. And, and you know, we, if if you're interested, we can talk about the technical details of how that all works. But it's you know, it's really very simple. People start bidding, they bid against each other in rounds, and and at the end of the day, somebody is the top bidder. The two other factors that can play into it are uh, the, the editor's personal sense of commitment to the project and how that gets communicated. And sometimes, you know, very often we hope uh, that the editor will get to meet either in person or, or by phone with the, an author and try to communicate that passion and also, you know, start a conversation with the writer about what they want to see out of their career and what they're looking for in a publisher and to really try to establish a connection and hope that in the crazy objective fog of an auction that that will stay with the writer uh, as they weigh, you know, the decision of where they're going to go. Uh, and the third factor is, is the house, you know, and, and uh, there can be even in an auction just of five or six mainstream houses, an enormous amount of difference among the various imprints that you might be, um, you know, that might be considering the book and uh, the kind of uh, the kind of publication you've seen those houses do, the size of the house and what, you know, what very subjective sense one might have of what that means for a book's publication, uh, whether they're a more literary house, whether they're a more mainstream commercial house, whether they're known for doing other books of this kind, whether you like the kinds of jackets they do, you know, all these kind of uh, historical factors, in a sense, uh, all play in. And at the end of the day, you know, the author and the agent have this one really difficult choice to make, which is where we, you know, in a scenario where it's a first novel that we're talking about, where are we going to start this author's publishing career? And it could be that they stay there for one book, or it could be that they're there for 25, 30 years and many bestsellers. Yeah. And then what about the actual, I mean, like, are you, is, is the agent just fielding calls? It's not like one big conference call and the agent's like calling it out like an auctioneer. Like, it's not like, 
it's not like that. It's, thank, it's, it's multiple... thank God, no. Okay, okay. That's no, not... I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, everybody gets to put their first round bid in, uh, usually sort of at the same time, and then the lowest bidder gets called next and told what the highest bidder bid, and not who it is, but what they bid, what the, next, what the highest bid in the first round was. And then uh, it sort of goes up, as I say, in rounds from there. And one of the one of the tricky uh, judgments that uh, an agent has to make in running an auction like that is um, you know, really where does it stop, and, and can you and should you make it stop at some point? And and you know if if in most cases obviously it's going to sort of reach its natural level where people may you know generally an auction goes two rounds, three rounds maybe. Uh, but there also can come a point where an author, where an agent can say, listen, next round, we're just going to do best bids. Everybody gives me their best bid blind. And that's how, you know, this is going to be decided, decided. Uh, and that's a way of not having the thing seem to drag on endlessly and, and lose, lose steam. And that, that can be, that can be scary for an editor, but also a little bit of a blessing. And then what about, uh, because, you know, Let's say there's seven publishers that are just in love with somebody's novel. It's a first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know how fickle you know the book market is and how difficult it is to publish uh, and reach a ton of readers. Um, but when you see a book go to auction and there's that level of enthusiasm from multiple reputable publishers, mm-hmm. uh, in your experience, have you found that that's uh, a, like a, a solid indicator that the book is going to resonate with like the reading public, or have you seen books that go to auction? And they fizzle, you know, they, for whatever reason, they don't connect despite their merits, you know, uh, otherwise. Oh, sure. I mean, the, the, the latter scenario uh, historically has happened in publishing, you know, time and time again. And, you know, when I started in, in uh, publishing, I was, I was working for uh, a guy who at the time, when for many years, was the CEO and editorial director of St. Martin's named Tom McCormick, who was really my, my sort of personal mentor when I got my start in the business. And he was, uh, he had a, 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 a very uh, deep and well-earned reputation for uh, not overspending. And we certainly got involved in uh, in plenty of auctions and won plenty of books, but he was also, um, you know, he would buttonhole you in the hallway and give you a, a good and compelling lecture about all of the publishing houses that were uh, extant when he started in the business and no longer were because they'd spent too many years doing exactly that, winning auctions and then um, realizing that they'd, you know, massively overspent. Uh, and that that's the danger of an auction is that uh, when you do have six or seven people all fighting for a book, emotion can run away with you and you can end up um, paying for a lot of copies that you're never going to sell and, and basically sort of giving away a lot of your investment on the book for the, uh, you know, for the distinction of having published it, but also earning a lot of red ink along the way. And, and that was, that was a sobering realization at the beginning of kind of my publishing education. Um, and I, I do think these days there are, there are a lot more sort of best bids auctions, uh, than there used to be. And, and that probably, even though best bids auctions, which by which I mean, publishers only get to bid once Uh, and uh and sometimes you know there's a sort of a modified version that's getting popular now where you know they say it's modified best bids you get everybody gets to bid their best and then we come back to a couple of people and ask them to bid their even better best (laughs) that happens a lot and that's been very popular in the past few years and and um 
as much as it seems to ratchet up publishers and sort of force to force them to start at the end of the race in a way uh it probably does kind of curb that sense of the, the kind of momentum that comes with an auction that goes in six or seven rounds where people are just, oh my God, yeah, we've got to win it. We've been in it this long. We can't stop now. And suddenly a book that you thought you were going to try to buy for $75,000, you find yourself you know, offering 450000 and thinking, wait, what was it about the seventy-five that I no longer <laughs> believe? And who are the people that, that I, I now think are going to buy it that I wasn't thinking about three days ago when we started this? You know, it's challenging. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I want to ask you about something uh, that I don't know if I've read too much or heard too much um, about, and that is mm-hmm. the, the issue of talent. Uh, you know, obviously everyone comes to writing with uh, a certain uh, innate uh, facility, for, you know, for, for writing and with words. But, you know, in your uh, career, uh, like, do, do you... I mean, can you read a page from someone and know if they have it or not? Or have you seen writers uh, develop? Like, what what are your thoughts on the issue of talent with regard to writing? Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned talent because, for better or worse, it's sort of. I mean, this this sounds this sounds like I'm putting myself on some high horse. I'm exactly like everybody else in publishing this way. Talent's kind of the only thing you really look for. It's just a matter of what the talent is is for. I mean, there certainly can be people who can come in the door and tell you, I've got a heck of a commercial story, you know, uh, you know, if it's a novel or even if it's a piece of nonfiction. I have my hands around an idea that nobody else has, and I can tell you that there's an audience for it. Um, that's that's all fine, but if they can't get it down on the page, uh, or if it's going to take more trouble than it's worth to get it down on the page, uh, then then it's just not that sort of enticing a proposition. On the on the opposite side of that spectrum, if I come across somebody who has what I think of as a, just a, a fundamental, you know, more than just facility, but talent for being surprising in a sentence, you know, for the musicality that comes with great writing or for, you know, incredibly rounded and uh, recognizable and surprising characters. Uh, that's the person I'm going to want to spend time with and and um, have conversations with and start asking them where they're, you know, what kinds of books they want to write and where they see themselves going. I mean, one, one of my... Um, uh, one of my sort of longest time authors is, is Jess Walter. Who I, I, was, know I was just, I was just thinking of him. 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 He was just going to yeah. my head because I'm like, so he's, good. he's really talented. <laughs> it, it, I mean, he's so talented in, in all the ways that I just mentioned and, and, and a lot more. And, uh, I started working with him. I've, I've done all of his fiction and, and I started working with him at a point when he was just beginning to write, uh, you know, full-length novels, and uh, you know, sort of, I, he had done some nonfiction for two or three, and he sort of called me one day and said, "Hey, do you, you know, would you mind taking a look at my novel? Would you like to read it?" And it was, it was a police procedural thriller, uh, and uh, I, that was not a thing that I have particular facility for, but I was so just, I just fell in love with all of his characters, and I knew that I wanted to find a way to. Uh, you know, I could convince myself that I could publish, you know, or, or work with Judith to publish um, the, the, you know, these these police novels that were the first couple of books that he did, uh, simply because he was such a great writer that uh, I knew I wanted to to work with him and publish these characters and and his storytelling and his, 
you know, unparalleled insight into kind of human frailty, which is, I think, the thing that he does best. And, and um, it, what, you know, the, the publication of those first two books, I'm glad that we, I, I love those books and I'm glad that we published them, but the much greater kind of bounty that came out of them was this um, kind of ongoing conversation that Jess and I have been having for 10 years or more about what he wants to do with fiction and how, you know, what stories he wants to tell. And, and uh, every time a new book comes in and we start working together on it, it's like having, you know, <laughs> having one of the most rewarding friends in the world come to you and, and say, uh, you know, here, share this with me and help me, you know, help me work this out. And, and um, I mean, they almost never need any work by the time he's gotten them to me, but he, you know, he loves, um, you know the process of beginning to share uh, each, you know, each book, and and uh, having working together on how we're going to begin to share it with the rest of the world by, you know, by publishing it and putting a cover on it and starting to sort of get the conversation go out there going on it, and it's just, you know, it's this rare experience that uh, that I wish I wish more people had the uh, had the fun of being able to do. Yeah, I mean, and like Beautiful Ruins is uh, in paperback has been killing it, you know, and like that book has yeah. really found a readership and. I mean, did you have it? Did you did you have a sense that this was going to happen, or is it always kind of like a pleasant and happy surprise? Even though you know, regardless of a book's merit, it's like you can't predict that something's going to take off like that has. Can you? You can't. You can't. And and it, there were reasons to believe that people would fall in love with it. I mean, I. You know, I can't think of a time when I was more passionate about sort of going up and, you know, at our, our launch meeting, which is the first meeting of a publishing season when, when we as editors go up and kind of present our books to the sales team and the marketing folks and publicity and tell them because you've read it. And by that point, they're only, you know, they haven't read it or they're only starting to read it. So it's your job to go and, and kind of grab them by the collar and tell them uh, you're going to fall in love with this book and, and help me make the rest of the world fall in love with it. And, and I, you know, I still remember like it was yesterday, the day I sort of sat down at the head of that table to, to talk to people about beautiful ruins. And, and the reason there were so many reasons, uh, that, that, that book, uh, had going for it at the beginning of that process. Uh, the fact that it's this romantic storyline and this, uh, um, uh, setting that's, cinematic and glittery and and is everything that you see on the beautiful cover of that book and more um and yet there are also things about that book that in theory are a huge challenge uh it is as as you may know a, a book told through you know one or two major storylines several subplots and then all of these other kind of little mini uh, chapters in that are fragments from other written works or, or oral works or plays or what have you. Uh, so there's this whole kind of structural experimentation going on in that book. If I'd gone up and, you know, sort of launched the book by saying, boy, have I got the most structurally experimental book we have this year? <laughs> I don't think I would have gotten there. I spent a lot more time talking about, uh, about Pasquale and Dee than, than that. Um, I knew it was a book that uh, that would kind of cross gender boundaries uh, for readers, probably more richly than his 
past books had done. His past books had been largely through female uh, uh, eyes, uh, through male eyes. Although his first two books actually were, the protagonist was a was a young female detective, uh, but they were you know they were police books, so they were they were likely to be bought by guys. But uh, but uh, Dee Murray, who's the, the the female lead in Beautiful Ruins, was. Um, a, a, a woman going through several passages of life, uh, who whose story was sure to you know kind of fascinate and and uh, and and possibly in some ways break the hearts of and warm the hearts of uh, of a lot of readers. So we knew we had all that stuff going in, and yet every editor in town got up on their launch meeting for that list and thought they had at least one book where that might happen to. And, you know, if it happens once or twice in your publishing career, you, you know, you're just grateful for it. Yeah, no, it's great. And, you know, I think of Jess too, I remember talking to him and he was telling me about his work ethic. So to kind of like circle back to the issue of talent, I think that's obviously there, but like that guy's like up at like five in the morning, every morning. <laughs> I think there are some people, you know, it's a, it's a work ethic issue, but it's also, um, you know, there are lots of writers, but I think some writers are really a fit for the work. Like they, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like some, some writers seem to struggle more with doing the work, like guys like that, like he's just like up at five and there, you know, like no problem. It seems like, but well, no, it's true. And, and, and on one hand that can sound like, boy, the work ethic, he is locked to the desk. He's a, but in truth, he's like, he gets up every morning, you know, super early goes out there and does it, you know, really because he loves it. And even though, I mean, he's talked about this, that book took him 15 years to write. And there were all kinds of times when he thought, oh, this is never going to work. And he would put it back in the drawer and, you know, sort of tend to his despair about it for a few minutes and then go off and do something else. The truth is he then would in the rest of his day, go off and do something else. I mean, the thing I love about jazz and, and I have, you know, more writers uh, than, I'm surprised at how many writers that I have for whom, uh, you know, the writing is is a big passionate challenge, and yet they have these otherwise normal balanced lives, you know, and they go out and I mean, Jess goes out in the afternoon and plays basketball, uh, you know, and and uh, and hangs out with local kids and has a great family and has you know. Uh, a, a, an amazing wife and has great friendships with writers in Spokane. And he just, you know, has this fantastic, uh, rounded, enjoyable life. And, and, you know, my great pleasure in that for him is that I don't have to think of him just as the guy in the garret who sort of comes down with bags <laughs> under his eyes after two years and says, here is my next masterpiece. And then goes back into the hole. He's having a lot more fun out there in Spokane than I am in New York. He's, yeah. he's doing great. Wow. Wow. Bless him. So, uh, I want to ask you before I let you go, I want to ask you yeah. um, about Harper Perennial, uh, the DNA that I alluded to earlier. And I, I ask this, um, you know, at least partially on behalf of people out there who might run small presses or who might ha or who might have an inkling to do so, because I think there are some similarities in terms of spirit, at least. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how you guys approached building um, a recognizable brand among so many, you know, you know how competitive it is. I don't have to tell you that, uh, you know, with regard to how many different publishers there are and how all the small presses, but like to distinguish yourself, there has to be thought put into the kinds of books that you publish and the kinds of voices that you're publishing. And, you know, how explicit is the strategy with regard to who you publish and what kinds of books? And can you articulate that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hope I can articulate it. It certainly is something that we think about all the time. And uh, I mean, the way I'll start talking about it is just to say two words, which is which is Carrie Kania, who was the publisher of Perennial for uh, several years and, and really drove uh, the kind of uh, rebranding of it and the the beginning of the originals program here uh, starting a kind of a year or two before I came on board in perennial and and uh, Carrie was my uh, sort of inspiration and partner in crime here for several years before she she kind of uh, she left New York and moved to London a year or two ago uh, but it, but her real uh, insight and and passion was that there was a brand to be built. There was a kind of publishing and a kind of imprint and a sort of a shared sensibility uh, to be um, planted and nurtured here. Uh, and she found a way to kind of start that, that ball rolling. And then I got in on it happily very early on. And Amy has been here, uh, Amy Baker, our associate publisher, before, you know, longer than I have too. And um, we have always really thought about it in terms of um, uh, finding authors who made sense with each other. In a way, it's a little bit like trying to think of who you'd invite to a wonderful party. Uh, you know, people who would like to read each other, and, and that began to be important and as social media began to be important. Uh, those two things were sort of happening at the same time. We were building this list, and that was happening because of our sensibility, but then we also began to see that we were, be, we were being led to the writers by other writers that we knew, and then we saw them, we could literally witness it online that they were also all discovering each other. Right. So, you know, so... Um, you know, Kate Zambrino and Roxanne Gay are, are, I think, mutual fans of each other. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say that it almost functions as like a farm system. Like, if you know how to pay attention to it, it can be really, inst it can be really instructive, right? Like a breadcrumb trail or something. You know, and then I think our job is to connect with them, start talking to them about what they want to do, and start, you know, trying to. It might be presumptuous to say lead them to, but start leading each other to the kinds of books that they should do uh, and the kinds of things that they want to do for their career. I mean, one one um, woman who I just signed up for a book, at, and, and she'll actually be a Harvard hardcover, but she very much came out of the, the perennial DNA, uh, is an artist that you may have heard of named Molly Crabapple. Do you know who she is? No, uh-uh. She's uh, you should you should look into her. She's just uh, an absolutely unique sort of figure in, in New York publishing. She's a kind of an, a, a lifelong alternative girl. I mean, I think she's just turning thirty, so the lifelong sounds uh, premature. But she but she is she began as a uh, a sketch artist and a model, and uh, she was the for a few years the house artist at the box, the, the sort of down club, downtown club, which was a really heady scene, you know, a few years back. And um, she just, began, she was one of these incredibly uh, sort of talented connectors where she began sort of meeting everybody and, and um, uh, sort of making connections with everybody from writers to uh, performers to models to strippers to you know you name it and uh and and then she through the happenstance of the fact that she um uh, lives downtown and is politically interested and and um and active uh, she sort of became the uh, house artist for the Occupy Wall Street movement. 
and so she was one of the first people uh, arrested down there and was uh, using social media to report on the experience through the whole, you know, uh, in real time as it happened. Uh, and has become this incredibly, and then she she sort of you know uses her art then to to capture and crystallize and explore and sort of narrativize all of these these experiences that she's had, and and um, uh, so she became a real um, a kind of figure in in um, you know in the in the cultural world in, in New York City and and beyond. And right now she's actually um, this summer uh done a series of stints for she's writing for Vice now and she's done a series of stints where she's uh, reporting from Guantanamo and she's the one person down there or one of uh, two or three people down there uh doing sketches of the detainees and doing incredibly important moving journalism about the lives of these people who are on and off of hunger strikes and being kept alive in some ways uh, against their will uh, and um, and she's doing it simply because she very early got into this kind of cultural and political conversation in New York City and and when she and I first started talking to each other we realized right away that we kind of had five or six friends in common through all these different walks of life and I sort of knew when over and over we began bringing up the same people kind of the Way you and I have that I was like, well, there's no way that I can't work with you. So she's doing a, a just a, a wonderful um, uh, illustrated memoir for me uh, that I just signed up recently, and she'll be doing that for, on the Harper list for me in a, in a year or so. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'll definitely have to check her out. And then yeah. uh, one final question with regard to uh, the brand building, because obviously yeah. I think I think that approach, like the the way that you described it, makes so much sense. Having authors who you think. Uh, would want to talk to each other, or you know, I think that's how you mm-hmm. phrased it. Yeah. Um, the other side of it uh, that I want to ask you about is uh, building your editorial staff and mm-hmm. the, the kinds of people that you hire. Like, obviously, you want to hire uh, qualified people, smart people. Uh, that goes without saying. But you know, specifically with trying to distinguish yourself as an imprint and to build like a recognizable brand uh, when these things are kind of slippery and difficult to do. Like, do you guys have? Um, I don't know, a different approach to hiring? Like when you're sitting somebody down with the the prospect of possibly adding them to the team, are you saying, who do you read? Like, who do you follow on Twitter? (laughs) How does it go? It's it's interesting because we don't actually have uh, more than a couple of people who are uh, specifically and uh, and exclusively uh, dedicated to Harper Perennial, what we have is the is the virtue of the entire Harper imprint editorial board, and that means that Harper hardcover editors, uh, you know, can acquire for us when there's a book that they like and want to do, but it's more naturally a paperback. But it also means that it's the um, the natural place for the for their assistance, for the young editors who are starting to acquire for the first time and out there looking for books. Uh, it's the natural place for them to come and bring their kind of first submissions that they're really serious about and, and want to do. And, and honestly, that's one of the things I love most about about my role in, in the business is that um, uh, we do really try to have a an explicit ongoing conversation with them about what perennial means and to make them feel from the moment they get here and start getting their sea legs that perennial is a place for them to grow and start exploring things and, and um, start bringing us people that we haven't heard of yet. Uh, you know, and, and the other, one of the other things that I do sort of in the publishing ether is that I'm on the board for the Center for Fiction, uh, you know, and, and that's just, 
as it happens uh, a few blocks away from us uh, here in Midtown. And uh, so every year I try to make sure that a couple of the editor of the young editors uh, sort of know about the Center for Fiction and come down to some of our events. And there's an emerging writers program, uh, emerging writers fellows at at the center um, where people like Mitchell Jackson, whose book The Residue Years has just uh, just come out. He was an emerging writers fellow. Uh, Marie Helen Bertino was another one. She's incredibly talented. Uh, and um, you know, trying to sort of make sure that our young editors get in the same room with those writers and that they come to the sort of dinner and or or or, or cocktail party and reading that we have for uh, for the Emerging Fellows Program every year and that they come to the big uh, awards gala that we have at the end of the year at the center uh, is just a way of showing them in the same way that you know Tom McCormick showed me when I came into the business uh, that you can get in on this big, you know, sacred, scary, intimidating, uh, but exciting conversation that, that publishing is, that uh, that you're going to be able to bring something to it that we don't necessarily know and have yet, but you do because you've been following some interesting people. Maybe there are people that you just, you know, came out of college with uh, and are now doing great stuff, or maybe there are people you've been following for five years and, and you think we should know about. Um, those people are always going to be the future in publishing. You know, it's not that common that, you know, 45, 50, 55 year old writers have big, crazy breakout debut novels. It's more, it's certainly especially common these days that it's the people who began publishing when they were 22, 23 years old in whatever form, you know, whether it's with Featherproof or $2 Radio or Harper Perennial, uh, those are the people I think, I like to think, who are still going to be exciting 30 years from now. Carrie Kania uh, and I, one of our kind of great uh, little totem, totemic objects that we both had a copy of in our office, uh, we both grew up, you know, watching the vintage contemporary series in, you know, in the 80s and, and uh, all the people um, from Jay McInerney on down that they were publishing. And there was a point some years into that run, maybe about 10 years, I guess it may have been even a 10th anniversary edition where, where they published not for sale, but as a, as a sort of a giveaway item to booksellers and, 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 uh, and the like, um, an anthology of all the writers that they had published. And if you look, and that was probably 25, 30 years ago that they published and Carrie and I both had copies of this book and it was, you know, a vintage contemporaries reader. And if you look at the table of contents today, I think maybe all but one or two of those writers are writers that we're still reading today. Hmm. And that's a pretty big statement. And I mean, what I hope for Harper Perennial is that if you come back 25, 30 years from now and you look at our uh, our catalogs and, and uh, our list of, of writers that we're working with, that at least some of those writers are, are going to have that same familiarity and that we'll all say, oh yeah, can you remember when you first read Roxanne Gay or can you remember when you first read Blake or Ben Greenman or Tenny Wayne or all these people because they're, you know, they're the, they're the writers that uh, that are exciting us all now. Well, uh, Cal, it's been super, super uh, fun and informative to talk with you, and I really appreciate the time, and I wish you luck uh, with all of your various uh, duties and responsibilities and projects. This has been great. <laughs> well, Brad, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Cal Morgan. Great guest. You can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at Cal Morgan. He's also on the Facebook, I believe. And if you want to check out any of the various imprints that he's involved with, 
uh, just go to harpercollins.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. Go download it. It's the official app of this program, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to the show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. So uh, formatting, branching out, the possibility of uh, including guests from other forms of media. Let me know what you think. There's nothing official happening yet. Uh, It's just uh, I'm entertaining ideas, and I want to know how you guys might feel about that. So leave me a voicemail at otherpeoplepod.com or send me an email either way. And uh, we can consider it together. Please remember that Samuel Johnson had to drop out of Oxford because his family couldn't afford tuition, and that Stravinsky once described W.H. Auden as being, quote, the dirtiest man I have ever liked. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks again to Cal Morgan for talking. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode, another conversation with a human being of bookish tendencies. So uh, go enjoy your day or your night, wherever you are. Where are you? Uh, If you want to know the, you know, if you want to know the truth, the biggest question about my listeners that I have is not if they listen. I don't sit around wondering all that much about if people are listening. What I wonder is, uh, for the people who are listening, where are they? Like, are, are you in a car? Are you on a train? Are you in the desert? Are you currently running through a field? Is someone chasing you? <laughs> uh, I'm in an apartment. And I wish I was running through a field. (laughs) 